Check two, check two, check two. Okay, there we go. It's back. We are rolling. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that wave action. Wave. Yeah. Magic. It's Just, surreal. Justin's working his Will Arnett voice today. <laughs> and I have a lot of allergies right now. So <laughs> Well, it helps your it helps your podcast voice. It totally does. Maybe I'll talk like this the entire time. Hello, Jeffrey. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption, and a little humor along the way. Welcome back to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. Today, we're going to talk about innovating the customer experience at scale, or more accurately, how uncovering a single moment of frustration or delight can transform into a global business idea. Stay tuned. All right, so I'm going to kick this off. Uh, and we are we are officially rolling on the podcast now. It's my pleasure to introduce Jeff Swearingen. Uh, I want to say, Jeff, you have a lot of globals in your title, so pardon me if I if I stumble <laughs> a bit here. Global SVP, Global Demand Accelerator, venturing in business services at PepsiCo. We'll let you tell your story, your professional story, in a minute here. But on our podcast, we like to talk about how we know our guests conceptually in kind of more of a word cloud. So I'm going to give you uh, some words that I think represent how I know you. Empath, intrapreneur, truth teller, rationally exuberant, collector of wisdom, builder of better futures, and ardent supporter of our collective humanity. So Jeff, I got to ask you to unpack some of that. Can you give me like, you know, the 30-second story of who you are and how you became this collector of wisdom and this rationally exuberant person. I mean, I almost, there's, there's a lot there. You're going to have to share your wisdom here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot there. And I would say those are Justin's words. So I would, I maybe aspire to those things. I don't know if I can claim those things, but um, it's a good list. Uh, yeah. So I, I think a lot of it though, are, I mean, honestly, those are things that are important to me. And um, I think a lot of that is just natural to who I am, but some of it certainly is a product of my professional experience and the kinds of opportunities that I've had and environments that I've worked in. And so, you know, I think some of it just comes from 30 years of having worked in a lot of different environments. And I would say even my 27 years or so at PepsiCo, I, you know, an old manager referred to me as neither fish nor fowl um, because I've spent time in so many functions, insights, marketing, sales, analytics, you know, and um, I think probably more than anything, um, that was because I'm motivated more than functionally, I'm motivated by transformation, solving tough problems. I do love connecting and inspiring talented people to chase common goals. And uh, even in this age of analytics, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, I'm a big champion of the human side of everything that we do. And um, ensuring there's empathy in the work that we do. 
So you mentioned you, you had a lot of different roles. So I'm a little curious, uh, you know, as you think about your professional journey, talk a little bit about how your industry has changed at a macro level, really, uh, you know, large trends and how that has affected the way, one, you approach uh, your work and the type of work you sought out. It's a lot of years, so it's changed quite a bit. I, you know, I, start, I, got, I graduated from undergrad and did banking for about four years. And then I went back to school and I joined PepsiCo in 94. So I'll start there in 94. And that period of time, almost 27 years, uh, there have been many changes. I, you know, there are four or five that come to mind. I would say as an organization and an industry, there's been a big shift from being very locally oriented to being more globally oriented. And I would say more recently to being globally oriented, but with a local touch. And I'll talk more about that later. We've shifted from being very functionally oriented to being highly matrixed and uh, interdependent and cross-functional. I would say from planning on an annual basis to very dynamic. We certainly still plan on an annual basis, but the way that we operate now is incredibly dynamic and requires a, a lot more agility. I think from an industry perspective, this is a, a little bit um, simplistic, but I would say an industry of sort of oligopoly where there were several fairly good sized players to something pretty close to perfect competition now. And particularly in the last 20 years, a lot of historical barriers to competition have just fallen, which has driven that. And then maybe the most obvious one is from analog to digital. Um, just, you know, digital and data is pervasive in everything we do now. So a lot of changes. I think global, matrixed, dynamic, digital in an environment with near perfect competition. So that sounds like a tough business. I mean, Peter Thiel would tell you not to be in a, in a market with perfect competition. Yes. You know, many years ago, even before I would have claimed all these changes, I was in a customer meeting and it was one of these fun meetings where I stand up and the very first thing the customer asked me is, why do you have a right to exist? Uh, and I was going, okay, <laughs> so that's going to be the tone of this meeting. And, you know, I, my answer to that is pretty similar today. It's because every day we wake up, we don't assume that we have a right to exist. And as goofy as that may sound, I think that when you're facing very dynamic competition, it is just a constant effort to improve every day, to look for an edge every day to do a better job every day of understanding consumers and trying to understand how you can more uniquely meet their needs, desires than your competition. And you do want to build in advantages where you can. I think these days intellectual property gives us more advantages than it did in the past. And certainly there are some structural advantages we have from a manufacturing and go-to-market perspective. And you know, PepsiCo, we're blessed with 21 brands or 22 brands now of over a billion dollars in size. So look, there are scale and there are advantages, but there's also a lot of venture capital money. And then really the last 15 years that's moved into food and beverage, there are a lot of options for a go-to-market that didn't exist 20, 25 years ago. And so the barriers to competition certainly have, if not fallen, um, they've diminished. Yeah, interesting. You know, when you use the word dynamic, how deep does that get into the organization? I mean, are you talking about changing manufacturing levels and like real time based on demand or what, what are you referring to there? A, a lot of the dynamic is in media. It's in it's in marketing. It's in go to market and service. Okay. So I'll give you three examples. The ability to 
dynamically change media plans and dynamically change content is, I think, table stakes at this point. The ability to dynamically for us change assortment at store level uh, is important. And the ability to dynamically change routing for distribution so that we can flex service levels. Those are three areas where we're constantly trying to refine. And by refine, I mean literally on a fairly perpetual basis, all of those characteristics of our business model. So if I dig into that for a minute, and I think you were alluding to this earlier, a lot of this is based on insights and analytics functions that you have, right? Determining where the needs are and how to best serve them and how to cost efficiently serve them as well. Clearly, you're dealing with a plethora of data on a day-to-day basis, you and your teams. And I, I think you referenced in a Forbes article the the gift of AI, right, in that context. What do you see as the next big wave of emerging technologies that's going to dramatically transform the packaged foods industry in, in any part of the supply chain or the value chain? I think it's end-to-end connectivity. Yeah, the way I describe this often internally is most of the puzzle pieces, if not all of the puzzle pieces, are on the table. And the work now is putting the puzzle together. And so the way that we think about that is from identifying a need through creating a proposition that's uniquely engaging to pulling that through to retail, either online or shelf, in a way that drives conversion in being able to, in real time, read and optimize your investments. And again, all of those pieces exist. And for us, and I think for our industry, it's being able to connect them. So the flywheel of insight through execution, through analysis, back to insight Mm -hmm. just spins faster and faster. And this is maybe going to sound a little bit out of place, but I had another curiosity as I was going through your background. Uh, By the way, you put some great material out there, so it was very interesting to just unpack your thinking. When, When you think about demand acceleration, right, how does a company like Pepsi set the metrics and the threshold for what's good enough for a new campaign, for a new product, for entering a new market? How do you think about that? Because you're on the forefront of measuring it, but you're also on the forefront of figuring out what to measure. The the way that we think about it is there's a theoretical demand for any brand. There's a theoretical demand for the categories that we participate in and for our portfolio in any given market. And then there are speed bumps and accelerators that can either diminish that theoretical demand or can accelerate toward that theoretical demand. And so we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about how do we address those speed bumps that exist. And a a lot of the work that we do with data and analytics is about that. And so you'll hear us use terms like perfect store. And we believe that there is an opportunity to put together a perfect communication, a perfect media plan, a perfect assortment at store level, a perfect presentation of that assortment at store level, to have a perfect product experience. And the closer you get to delivering against that potential, you begin to accelerate demand and you begin to unlock growth that you just haven't realized in the past because all of these things along the chain from the initial idea to consumption, uh, all along that, there were things that were diminishing the potential of the idea. And maybe this is part of the secret sauce that you can't talk about, but what are those data points that you're measuring against your platonic ideal, right? So when you say there's a perfect store selection, 
I'll give you an idea. So let me just take the U.S. as an example. Mm -hmm. So over the last five years in the U.S., uh, we've built two data sets, one we call consumer DNA and one we call store DNA. On consumer DNA, we have data on about 106 million households in the U.S., and we have first-party data on maybe half that set. So it's a big consumer data set. Some of it is second and third-party data um, with restrictions and limitations, but a lot of it's first-party data. On the store side, we have data on about a half a million retail outlets in the U.S. And in each case, the data is great depth. On the consumer side, like a thousand lines of data per record, big, big data. So what that allows us to do is for any initiative, it allows us to identify what we would call the most valuable consumer or the most valuable shopper for any initiative. Any new product we launch or any existing part of our portfolio, or for that matter, any promotion that we're doing. And it allows us to then create a digital audience so that for that initiative, we're engaging the right consumers and you know at the right time with the right messaging. Now, the store side of it's very interesting because it allows us to pull that all the way through to retail and work with our retail partners to ensure that we have the right assortment the right presentation of that assortment, the right value story, all of those things at retail so that the expectations that we create for consumers upstream, we pay off in their retail experience. And then we have a capability called ROI Engine. Think of it as marketing mix modeling on steroids, which allows us to look at the outputs in increasingly real time and uh, read the impact and make adjustments and begin to realize that flywheel approach that that I talked mm -hmm. about earlier. Now, some of this um, is more mature. You know, some of these components are more mature than others, but that allows us to achieve something much closer to that theoretical maximum for demand because, you know, at the end of the day, if I take all that away and just simplify it, what it allows us to do is it allows to better understand and better meet the desires and, and needs and wants of consumers in the context that they're existing in. So I'm going to make an observation. If I, if I quiz the average person that I know about how dynamic they thought the world at a packaged food or PepsiCo would be, right? I don't think that they would get into this. They would have this level of insight into, wow, there's a lot that you can do. There's a lot of transformation that can be driven out of granules of data and, you know, more larger sets of data. So when you think about all of that, how do you find those people that you described, you know, as desirable for your teams, people with infectious enthusiasm? How do you turn them on to the world that you're in and bring them in, convert them, and then keep them thriving given how large PepsiCo is? There are a few things that are really cool about our company. One is the people in the culture at the company are amazing. Really, really bright people, just inherently wired to work in collaborative ways. So it's a good culture. For a big CPG packaged goods company, it's a very progressive culture and willing to take risks, lean in and transform. And that's exciting. You get to work with amazing brands, big household name brands that are very dynamic brands uh, as well. 
there's the opportunity to work on initiatives that have a global footprint. And then, you know, for people who are just big problem solvers, there's a, the opportunity to transform one of the largest companies in the world because we are a 50-year-old company. And if you look at the lineage of PepsiCo back to the underlying businesses, well over 100 years old. So we're not native in this space. And so this is a transformational journey. And that means there are really hairy problems to work through. And smart people are usually attracted to big, hairy problems. So that helps as well. I think I can attest to that. Just, you know, <laughs> given the people that I hang out with, one of whom's on this podcast with me right now, two of whom I should say. You know, I'm imagining this kind of ocean of possibilities, of issues you can address, places to focus. When you have this kind of unlimited pool of customer insights. So how do you prioritize which of those insights is actionable or is desirable enough to, you know, start developing product against? Yeah, I think there's a few basics you have to say. I mean, I think it starts with things that we've always thought about, which are trying to identify unmet or undermet needs, wants, and desires. So you can call that white space if you want, but it doesn't necessarily have to be white space. It can be gray space, but it's just there's something that's either an opportunity or a problem that can be addressed. And you address those in a way where the solution's the hero and the presentation's uniquely engaging. And that's just, that's sort of the bread and butter of what companies like ours do. What's more interesting to me, there's two things, I guess. One is unarticulated opportunities or latent demand opportunities. And that's long, I would say long bit of part of product development. But now we're bringing that notion of unarticulated opportunities to the full commercial side of the business. So let me give you an example. When I talk about understanding the full opportunity at store level, one of the things we often do is use what we'll call marker categories to help us understand the potential of a category that may not be well-developed in a particular store. So bananas, for example, is a, that's a marker category for a Gatorade. So where we don't have enough direct data to draw a conclusion, we will look at these marker categories. And we often will be able to infer a lot of really good insight about latent demand based on marker categories. Um, the other thing that we look at is if you look at consumer cohorts across an omni-channel environment, you know, what you'll often find is that consumers are shopping in a particular retailer or a particular store, but they're not buying certain categories or they're not buying them to the same degree. And so that makes you wonder, wonder why not? I wonder why these people that are that meet all the characteristics, I'll just stick with Gatorade, meet all the characteristics of being a Gatorade consumer for whatever reason are not converting here. They may be buying someplace else, but uh, it allows you to dig in a little bit deeper and see if there's something that um, could be addressed in that environment that would make that environment more attractive to that consumer. So a lot of the things we would have done historically around product development, we're now just bringing into the full, I would say, commercial strategy around identification and engagement. So now I have to ask, you know, when you talked about marker categories, it sounded to me a lot like proxies, right? I don't have the actual data, but what can I sort of correlate um, something with? What's the strangest marker you've ever created for a PepsiCo product? Something that you just thought, this is pretty oddball. Well, I'll give you one that may not be uh, odd once you hear it, but, but it made us laugh. Captain Crunch for Mountain Dew. You're kidding. And vice versa. Wow. And uh, when, you, when, you, when you dig in a little deeper, you'll find that 
there's an awful lot of both of those in college dorms. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, kind of funny. But what's really interesting is when you, you know, I use the banana example a lot because I think it's a good one when you look outside of our category is, and to me, bananas and Gatorade is very intuitive too, but it's just not the, normally the way you would have looked at it. You would have looked at these near-in competitors and tried to very narrowly define the potential of a category based on direct adjacencies. Yep. And direct adjacencies just don't tell the full story. Yep. You know, it's interesting you talk about consumers who, you know, buy certain things at certain places. And I, I have seen that a lot in the past maybe 10 years where people are, you know, not looking for a single supermarket anymore. At least that's not how they're shopping. They're, they're compartmentalizing you know, what you think you could buy all in one spot, but they're buying certain things at certain stores and whether they're going to a Costco or around here, you know, a Jewel or, a, you know, Mariano's, I guess, has it changed the way you look at your distribution? I think it's changed the way that we think about the consumer journey. And so we really think about a full omni-channel journey now. And when we think about that, and I wouldn't say that we have perfect data in all these situations, but we have some, and this is something that we aspire to, is when I think about that, it's not just retail food and beverage either. It's food service. It's business and industry. It's travel. It's all the touch points for us where convenient food and beverage have a presence or have a right to have a presence. Because there's insight from all of those. Food service is incredibly insightful. And so we look, try to look at that entire omnichannel uh, journey and try to understand Across that journey, what are the insights? And, you know, what I would say, I know we'll, we'll probably, my guess is you'll probably have questions on this later, but I'll just add this now is, you know, when I look at that journey now, you know, after the last year and a half that we've been through, obviously, it's more important than ever. I mean, for our categories in the last year, 80% uh, of households in the U.S. have purchased food and beverage online. And it's older consumers than ever before. It's lower income uh, than ever before. And now we're seeing, even as things are loosening up a bit here in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of that stick. About 40% of consumers are still shopping food and beverage in a combination of brick and mortar and online every week. So it's important. Uh, I, the other thing that I think is really important in, in understanding this omni-channel journey is just how much easier it's become for consumers to do what you described, which is to tap into multiple options to fulfill their full food and beverage needs. Where, you know, when I was growing up, that was just ridiculous. You just you couldn't do that. Um, and that's a little bit of what I spoke to earlier about, you know, barriers falling. I mean, now consumers have more choice than obviously they've ever had before, and they have more control over their options than ever before. And so, it's really important for us to think about, first, how do we understand those journeys? How do we understand the unique motivations for different stops along the journey? And then to the degree we can, you know, what can we do to curate our engagement so that we're showing up at the right places in the right way to be as meaningful as a part of that journey as possible? You just wandered into one of my big questions or one of my requests of you, actually. I would love if you could take a single product and take the position of a consumer uh, on that journey from awareness 
to the search, to consideration, and like kind of walk through what are all the ways that, you know, PepsiCo can provide those gentle nudges along the way for that consumer and moments of delight. And, you know, what does that journey look like? And like, be that consumer for me. And and maybe with some post-it notes of how PepsiCo is, is making that easier or more delightful. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little juxtaposition at the beginning, and then I'm going to take one and I'll, I'll give you a few thoughts on one, and then I'm going to dive into this nudge question. Yeah. So that's the way I'll, I'll unpack it, if that's okay. Sure. So if you think about our portfolio, again, we have a lot of brands, over 20 brands that are massive brands, household brands, Lay's, Doritos, Mountain Dew, Pepsi, so on and so forth, Quaker, um, Gatorade. And many of those products have near near ubiquitous access. And so the, if you take a brand like Mountain Dew, the touch points in a journey are going to be just enormous. I mean, it's going to be convenience stores, restaurants, theaters, schools, business and industry, traditional retail, e-com. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I couldn't even, I couldn't even think of all of them, but it's, it's an enormous number. On the other side, we do have a lot of smaller brands that are much more focused around a particular benefit or a particular consumer group, and that may be a bit more narrow. Some of those are more likely to index in e-com, or they're more likely to index in a uh, traditional grocery store. But if I take a product like Mountain Dew, which is across many uh, touch points, there's a few ways that we think about brands like that. First is there's going to be a combination of planned purchases and impulse purchases. Our portfolio serves both as a destination. So I may make a stop at a convenience store for Mountain Dew. And it also serves as a complement. I may stop at a convenience store for a slice of pizza and pick up a Mountain Dew. Our portfolio tends to be a fast cycle time from purchase to consumption, which provides an opportunity for a lot of engagement, a lot of touches, as opposed to products and categories where you may only purchase it three or four times a year. So a brand like Mountain Dew is incredibly dynamic, which provides high opportunity for engagement. And for a brand like that, what you're constantly thinking through is now how do I use my insight and my analytics so that I show up in these different locations certainly with the core identity and positioning of Mountain Dew, but with slightly different presentations so that I can lean into the context of that environment and I can lean into the sub-motivations around the product for that environment. And that'll mean in some cases, I'm going to lean a little bit more into the core benefit of the product around thirst or energy. In some situations, I'm going to lean a little bit more into the characteristics of the product as a complement to food. And you're going to try to play those things up in your communication and in, in your merchandising in those different locations. And so we think about, you know, this uh, every step of that way is an opportunity to either amplify mm-hmm. or to diminish the potential resonance of that brand. And so in each of those, how we communicate, how we present the value offering that we have, the experience that we offer, those are all things that are kind of jump balls. And when we get it right, the way that we show up and engage in that context, we can accelerate the relevance of Mountain Dew. And when we get it wrong, we can create speed bumps. 
And I'll give you an example. So imagine, you know, that you're on a, a shopping trip. So just, you know, and when you think about that shopping trip, you may have gone into the store for a certain mission, certain number of items, certain thing that you wanted to accomplish. Very, very rarely as consumers is the way we execute that mission exactly what we thought of when we walked in the front door or when we clicked online. And some of the reasons that that happens is because we either hit accelerators or we hit speed bumps. And the most basic ones are navigation, uh, I think education and inspiration. Uh, you know, are you making it easy for me to find what I want? If you do that, I have a windfall from that of time. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll reinvest that time and shop a little longer. Yeah, or discovery. Are you making it easy for me to understand? Are you inspiring me along the way? So um, those are all opportunities that you have to turn what could be a small trip into a bigger trip. You just described something that I've been struggling to articulate much of my much of my adult life, which is I don't enjoy grocery shopping for the most part. And one day someone took me to Whole Foods and said, just wander around. And I discovered all of these new things and they were happy to let me try new fruits or vegetables. And it was like going into a market abroad, right? And just wandering the streets and seeing what the locals had to offer it was, um, it was very satisfying. So, so I, I have a question for you, though, that relates to something that you brought up in Adweek. I think it was Adweek, um, but forgive me if I got it wrong. You talked about how the UK is evolving more like the US. We were talking back about omnichannel, so with online purchasing. Do you see major trends like that emerging in other markets during COVID? Because that was a COVID effect, correct? Yeah. Um, I, the COVID effect to online is pretty universal around the world. Okay. And what you're seeing is an acceleration in it's it's interesting in the sense that markets that were lagging, you know, are quickly now moving forward. But what I think is the most interesting is markets, say China, for example, that were already advanced, right. have started going into entirely new areas. So I'll give you two examples. One is social commerce, and the other is group commerce. So in China, if you go back to, oh my gosh, I think it was 2002. Um, China had the SARS breakout. Mm -hmm. And during the SARS breakout in 2002 in China, online shopping for food and beverage increased fivefold in one year. So, you know, almost 20 years ago, you know, China had this big acceleration. And in this last round with COVID, what we saw is that social commerce, so think of that as just the intersection of social media and commerce has exploded and group commerce has exploded. And the group commerce piece is very interesting too, because during lockdown, there were a lot of urban communities, housing blocks, so on and so forth, that were basically locked down. And one of the outcomes of that was people getting together as groups and beginning to block buy things as groups. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so it's fascinating now to see those things have just really taken off and while some other things now have started to flatten out just a little bit in China, those two areas have continued to accelerate even as COVID has, has started to not be, have quite the same impact as it did at the beginning. So the moral behind that is, I guess, there are lessons in multiple markets. Uh, certainly the UK is making a lot of progress, but I think it's always very interesting just to try to find those places that are a little further ahead and 
what are the things about what they're doing that could have broader impact in the next couple of years in the U.S. or in some of Western Europe? Could you actually define a little bit what you mean by social commerce? Is it purchasing through WeChat or something like that? Or how, what does that mean? Yeah, it can, it can actually take you know, a number of forms. But in its simplest form, just imagine that you're on Instagram and someone recommends something. And it's one of your friends. It's somebody that you know and trust. And in that, you have the ability to click straight through and purchase it. Okay. I have a colleague who has an 18-month-old. And they watch a lot of just kid-related videos and content on Instagram. And he said, it's crazy the amount of things that I now buy through Instagram. And the journey started with entertainment. And it wasn't a shopping journey. It started with entertainment. And I was inspired by something while being entertained. And that immediately led in you know, one, two clicks through to a purchase. So you can imagine your mind kind of goes crazy with all the ways that can come to life. You can get, um, you, you really can start to get a lot of celebrity influencing. And there's a lot of things that can come into social media in that sense that can lead to endorsements, whether it be your friend or whether it be a celebrity. One of the things that I've been noticing about PepsiCo is the broader conversation in social media on channels around the push towards sustainability. Can you talk a little bit about that? I saw your post on Earth Day. What is Pepsi doing and what do you aspire to be when it comes to an ESG company? It's one of the things, to be honest, that makes me the most proud to work for this company is we have long had a very public commitment to sustainability. And now I'm really proud of it. So I'll just give you a few areas and I won't belabor this, but I'll go a little deeper if you want. Obviously, we're a big food and beverage company, so regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm is an area that's really important to us. So we're looking at getting to 100% sustainably sourced agriculture products. And we have hard goals for all of these. Uh, Water security is an area that's uh, really important to us. We have a goal by 2030 of providing water security to 100 million households, packaging, recyclability. By 2025, 100% of our packaging will be recyclable, compostable, or biodegradable. Climate's a big area, products a big area, and then people is a big area. We are very public around human rights, equality for all, representation, supportive education, diverse businesses, those things. So it's very comprehensive, you know, from agriculture all the way through people. And what I love about it is they're super hard goals, and we're very public about our progress against those goals. And I, I think what's nice about it is when you have super clear company goals in an area like that, it permeates your culture. And when it permeates your culture, it shows up in all the things that you do. And so it does, it shows up in, in product development, it shows up in marketing, it shows up in merchandising, it shows up in customer partnerships, et cetera. Well, it's showing up in your voice. I mean, I could clearly hear how passionate you are about PepsiCo's commitment here and also just the level of pride you have in, in the effort that the company's made towards moving, you know, in all of these different directions. Um, I am curious, when it comes to things like water security, you know, you mentioned it by 2030 in communities all around the world. Are you partnering with other organizations to help facilitate this or is this PepsiCo just innovating within its own confines what they need to do to solve these massive macro level, you know, planetary problems to some extent? Yeah, it's a combination. Okay. Um, I don't have the, I don't have the partnership details in front of me, but we do have uh, external partners that we work closely with. 
And the other thing that we're constantly doing internally, uh, one of the small teams I lead is Pep Labs, which works with venture capitalists and with startups. And we're focused on a variety of different areas, but one of the areas that we have focused some on is um, around regenerative agriculture and water. And so we're constantly looking for kind of nonlinear solutions, cutting edge technologies that can shift the curve, so to speak, on uh, water usage in our facilities. And then our partnerships are our altruistic work and our partnerships are very much around water security at the individual and the household Got level. Got it. And can you, can you unpack regenerative ag? Because that just sounds like it's an area rich with all kinds of innovations and transformative technologies and approaches to agriculture. Um, I can a little bit. I, I would just say I'm not an expert on regenerative agriculture, but what, what at the end of the day, um, you know, what you want to ensure is that the land is equal or better after a crop is yielded than before. And you, you want to be able to, um, you know, continue to, to farm land with the same yield and productivity and creating the same job opportunities and sustainability for the local economies forever. And so I, I, I love the word regenerative because I think there's so much just in that word around it literally is regenerating the soil and regenerating um, the land. That, yeah. that is a great word. And I'm, I'm going to take a right turn here, or maybe it's a sharp left turn, actually. <laughs> uh, I want to focus on two words that you gave a TED Talk about. It was happiness versus pleasure. Is that correct? Did I recall that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, Justin, when he introduced you to me, originally he he shared that and I thought it was very moving. And I wondered how did someone in your path of life and in your path professionally come up with the notion of sharing this philosophy or this perspective, if you will? And then, you know, how does it shape how you approach things every day? But I'm sure our listeners would just love to hear a little bit about it. Yeah, I think part of it is if you go back to you know, Justin's description of me at the beginning, I think probably explains some of it. Uh, it's a little bit of an interesting story to me. And you guys can decide <laughs> if it's interesting. We think it's interesting. Uh, I, I, it's a, I'm a big believer in guiding values. So I think when you have a true north in your life, day-to-day decisions actually become pretty easy. And I think that having a true north uh, can enable um, a life of happiness, the absence of one can lead to a life chasing pleasure or dopamine hits, which, you know, I honestly, in my own life, I worry about because there's so many things, technology and other things that we're always connected to these days that provide that just quick hit, quick hit, quick hit. And that's different. That's a different level of of happiness. And at the time that I did that, there was also a lot of really good work around the importance of a happy workforce and the economic value of a happy works workforce. And so I'd spent some time thinking about that. The underlying story, which um, is really one of the reasons that I wanted to do this is my kids. And that's, you know, that's the whole father of fishermen thing is a nod to my boys and trying to instill these values in them. And as a father of boys, I think 
you know, boys are unique. And I think I said in that TED talk, they're little cavemen. And uh, one of the things that you learn very quickly is eye to eye contact is a buzzkill. And if you want to be able to have these conversations about anything that's serious, <laughs> anything, you know, you've got to find ways to do it. So for us at that age in their life, fishing and doing things like that created an environment where I could try to pass along a, a little bit of uh, wisdom and values in a way that they could hear it. So I'd say the, you know, the overarching idea was the distinction between happiness, which I, I think of as being enduring, uh, versus pleasure, which I think of as being fleeting, and the economic value of that from a business perspective. But I would tell you from a personal perspective, it was kind of an Easter egg for my kids, to be honest, as well. Oh, that's nice. Or a Trojan horse, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that. <laughs> you mentioned that you have a personal board of directors. So how did you populate that personal board of directors and what types of people do you recruit and, and why, I guess? You know, I really fell in love with the idea. First of all, you know, one of the things you know about me is I'm just, I'm curious to a fault. I'm kind of always, I'm, I get, I really fall in love with new ideas, sometimes too hard, too fast, but uh, it's just the way I'm wired. <laughs> and I really fell in love with the idea of wisdom of the crowds, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was when that book came out. And what I started practicing pretty informally was just this idea that if I could come up, think of it almost as a, a perfect brief. If I could come up with a very well-worded, super clear question or perspective, and I could then send that out to 10 people that have different experiences, different points of view, within 24 hours, I would likely have an integrated perspective on that topic that was at least B plus, maybe better. And if I'd gone about trying to approach that in a linear fashion, it might take me weeks or months and I might not ever get to the same level of quality. So that kind of evolved over time to this notion of a personal board of directors. And uh, I don't, I mean, just in, in full disclosure, I wouldn't say that I have a formal board right now. What I have is a group of people that have different experiences, different backgrounds, uh, different skills, different strengths, different interests. And they're all, you know, an email or a text away. And sometimes I will engage them individually based on what I'm thinking about. And sometimes I'll engage them as a group or several of them at once because it gives me this great, you know, breadth of perspectives in a super short period of time, and it's a great aid of aid to judgment. And I, I just think being able to move with speed is probably the only real competitive advantage anymore. And it's one of those things that enables me to move with speed because I can take something where I don't have any hard facts. But if I ask 10 really experienced, smart people that are incredibly diverse in their backgrounds and ways of thinking, um, and I get all that feedback in 24 hours, I'm going to be able to glean some themes from that that's going to give me the confidence to move forward quickly on something without any additional information. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, I wouldn't apply that to 
brain surgery, <laughs> rocket science. You know, there's a few things that I would exclude from this method. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, as to, to build on the jazz theme, if it's close enough for jazz, then I think we can... <laughs> Well, yeah, and just to expand upon that, many, many years ago, I went to a talk by Wim Wenders, who's a German filmmaker. He's done, like, really a broad range of films. And I remember asking... Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire, Paris, Far Away So Close, a bunch of... uh, I think he's been a BAFTA Award winner, probably an Academy Award nominee. Um, But yeah, just... He's a very... Um, he's a very curious person and covers very curious topics in very poetic ways, in my opinion. And so I asked him, how does he pick? Because he has all these different ideas and, and some of them he just builds from scratch, right? You know, building it all up as he goes along. How does he pick what he wants to invest his time in and what's worth making? And he basically says he had the equivalent of a personal board of directors, Jeff. He has a, what he called, he referred to it as a committee of a set group of people that were very different that basically get exposed to it. And if they like it, great. And if they don't, he really takes a pause and, you know, rethinks it. And I thought, well, that's really not only rational, but a great way to have a discussion about your work as it's evolving. The thing that's interesting about, I mean, I think you could cynically say it's no different than just doing a poll, but I, I think it is different. Um, and, and I'll give you two, two reasons why I think it's different because they're handpicked and you've curated this group because of their individuality. And the second is they're personally invested in you. And so they're going to actually try. (laughs) They're actually going to, they're actually going to invest a little bit of their brain power in trying to help give you a decent answer and not just respond um, so they can be finished. So you actually view this concept as different than mentorship then, right? Because I, I think some of those things would apply to mentoring, but I don't know that it would be. I feel, yeah, I view it as a, it's a little bit, I think it's a little more transactional. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mentorship is more that ongoing sounding board and it's probably a, a smaller group of people. And it's probably, honestly, it's probably people that you either have more in common with or that you aspire to be more like you probably have chosen them for reasons i think of the board of directors i mean the board directors can be people that you have a respectful relationship with but you don't have anything in common with yep right right other than you appreciate you appreciate their intellect their capability and you have that mutual respect for one another so you're willing to invest in one another what also seems to suggest that they would have greater influence over you than the average mentor Right, that there's some sort of dynamic there that says these are people that are going to vote, right, for which way to go in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, and I almost think about mentorship more as like aligning how to think around something. Usually, when I'm engaging someone, either as a mentor or being mentored, uh, it's a discussion about narrowing the kind of heuristics, right, down to how should we really be thinking about a problem, or how should I be thinking about a problem, or how should this person be thinking about. Whereas what you're talking about with your board of directors is really, is not as directional. It's more like um, solution oriented, right? Give me, you know, what you think of this. I want an opinion. Yeah. Hence the transactional piece. Yeah. That's the, tra- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just take it a step further and say, I, you're, you're, you are my venture capitalists. I, I'm going to pitch this idea to you. And at the end of the day, I'm looking for your funding. And I need to know if you're in or you're out. 
and I need to know why either way. So I've personally found when you have structures like that, that are transactional, that you also have to bring a lot of currency to the table to make that relationship sort of alive and um, functional over time, right? So it doesn't just diminish. Have you had to invest back in your personal board of directors or just give things back to people that you know benefit them to aid in their journey? Yeah, I'm sure I do. But to be honest, I don't keep track of it. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's just the way I operate too is, I mean, these, these for the most part, some of them are going to be more arm's length people that we just have a respectful working relationship. But a lot of them are people that you've known for years and you would, you would very willingly give up time, energy, sleep, you know, to help them. Yeah, you'd and organically so, aid them. Yeah, you just do it. You don't even yeah. think about it. You just do it. So, yeah, I, I, you know, look, and I get a lot of energy also from investing in others. Um, I, I get as much energy from that as anything I do. So it's fun for me. Justin, do you want to maybe launch into the game and we can come back to some of this other yeah, stuff? Yeah, absolutely. All right, but are you ready to play, Jeff? And are you sure? I am not sure, but I'm game. Let's play. <laughs> Good. We like that. Okay, the first one. If AMC Theaters opened a line of urgent care clinics, what would their unique selling proposition be? Entertainment while you wait. First of all, you need to be distracted. If you're at an urgent care clinic, you're probably there because something is urgently wrong. And uh, I think while you're waiting, some way to distract you, provide entertainment, take your mind off of the challenge that you face, uh, and you know, overcharge you for popcorn would be... <laughs> and and Band-Aids? That would be their angle, yeah. They'd have to be movie-themed Band-Aids. Yeah, yeah, Avengers. Like everything's Avengers. Yeah, Marvel. Everything's, li everything's licensed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next. You just walked out of the new Tesla Bodega slash Quick Mart. What innovations did you see? Yeah, I love this one. I think everything is going to be about personalizing the user experience. So uh, when I when I think about the Tesla, one of the things that you just love about Tesla is there's obviously the environmental component and everything, but I think equally important is the user experience of a Tesla. And it's the intuitive nature of, of driving a Tesla. It's the digital connectivity. It's basically a computer on wheels. And so when I go into this bodega, I'm going to get the same experience. It's going to be highly intuitive. It's going to be um, very dynamic in the sense that it's going to be able to algorithmically react to my actions and create uh, options, offers, and environments that are uniquely tailored to my engagement. And uh, I think it's probably going to be pretty good for the environment, too. I'm, I'm just thinking right now, maybe all the, you know, the things that uh, the algorithm thinks I'll probably buy just come and float by me like, a, like at a sushi bar. That'd be nice. Super convenient. You know, and maybe I'll take that, 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 that. And by the time you're, you're done, your cart follows you outside or your basket. <laughs> Yeah, it's a virtual, there's a virtual conveyor belt in front of you or everywhere you look. Things, I do think it'd be interesting to also bring, you know, holographic 
capability or virtual capability to environments like that. Yeah. I, I think, and I think ultimately there'll be a productivity play there as well. But um, that's the kind of problem. And that's the thing you have to love about Elon Musk is when you take on massive, massive problems like that, there's this huge trail behind you of smaller ideas and smaller capabilities and smaller technologies that have reapplication across many industries. So what would you do with that kind of like, you know, with holograms or light fields in that bodega? Like you said that and I, I'm trying to visualize what you're visualizing. Yeah, I just want the experience. I mean, think of it almost like virtual reality. I just want the experience to be curated. I want it to be real time. I want it to be curated to my experience. And so if you really want to go out there, you know, imagine that what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're thinking is all a part of the algorithm. And then it's visualized for you and options are made available to you. And there's a very simple way without maybe even touching anything. I mean, you don't need to go to a bodega. You can do this from anywhere without even touching anything. You're just making choices. Um, think, think about this progression. So think about the way we digitally shop today. Think about that moving to voice, which, by the way, should have already happened, but is imminent. And then think about the next evolution of that, which could just be, you know, where you look or what you think. Right. Um, and what I don't, what you, nobody knows is, you know, where's the inflection point on utility for something like that? At some point, it probably hits a wall in terms of the incremental utility. And the other piece, which I think you can really build into that is, again, if you go back to navigation, education, inspiration, you can build a whole lot of inspiration into an experience like that. Go back to your whole food example. Think about how immersive you can make a virtual experience and you can you can turn something that would seem routine or would be more about navigation and convenience and you can make it very immersive, very experiential, very enjoyable, which ultimately will lead to probably higher degrees of emotional loyalty beyond behavioral loyalty. You know, it's funny, as you guys were talking, I realized that my caveman brain didn't really foresee that that. Quick Mart Bodega is just at the end of your fingertips, right? You're in extended reality or something like that. Uh, it's where you are. You don't have to go to the Tesla Bodega. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the last year has taught us that I don't think you have to go anywhere. <laughs> in, in, in much of the world, in much of the world, I mean, things will come to you. You know, it's funny that you say that because when you were talking about this environment that was curated based on your preferences, right? So it could be everything from eliminate things with these colors from the palette or, you know, what have you. The first thing I actually thought of was eliminate one of my pet peeves, which is watching people just abandon grocery carts anywhere in the parking lot. You know, it's so easy to just get your extra steps and like walk it yeah. over to where it belongs, you know, do someone else a favor. But if if I went to this Tesla bodega, I would never have to see a grocery cart or another true. person they would, abandon They would one. return home on their own. Um, okay. So I'm going to shift gears and I'm going to talk about something that an artist once told me about a long time ago. And I'm just curious what your insights around this would be. So many, many, many moons ago, as I was just getting into to jazz and, you know, I was pretty young at the time and meeting all these different experimental artists in the category, and they were talking about with some level of fear that the industry was kind of on its the tail end, you know, that it was hard to develop new jazz listeners. It was hard to get jazz to penetrate younger generations. 
even the more experimental types of jazz weren't known to the most progressive music listeners. And now, even with all the digital platforms and greater ability to get exposed to new types of jazz, I'm just curious, if you put your product and marketing genius hat on, what would you do to save an industry like that? Uh, It's interesting. There's a these are the things that come to mind. There's a breadth and depth. And I would probably spend some time thinking about breadth and depth. But let me start with depth. I, I think it's always important to, I'll go back to what I said earlier, identify your most valuable consumers. So I would try to identify the top 10% of jazz lovers in my market. And I would show them so much love that I would create undying loyalty. And you can do that in any number of ways. Once you commit to that, um, then it becomes about understanding what's important to them. How do you curate experiences for them? And how do you build greater loyalty, greater engagement, greater participation from that core? What you typically find with depth exercises is that when you establish crazy loyalty with that core, you'll find that there's a bit of a a histogram of loyalty that flows out from that, where you can then begin to move out to the next tranche and the next tranche and the next tranche. So you may be able to go from 10% to 20% by inching out from that core as you learn more and you find ways to engage people that have just slightly less loyalty, but are still loyal. So that's depth. From a breadth perspective, I think you have to introduce it to new audiences in new ways. And there's been some really interesting examples, I think, over the last 25, 30 years of how this has happened. And a lot of it is music mashups where you see people like Tony Bennett, you know, making this huge comeback, uh, you know, in his 70s, and then having this renaissance of 20, 25 years based on collaborations and mashups. And there's a lot of examples of that. So I think you have to find ways to um, introduce jazz through a different lens than you have in the past. And then I think that breadth starts with, you know, what are potential mashups that could achieve that goal? And what are the kinds of collaborations that could achieve that goal? What are the environments um, that could bring that to life? And uh, the good news on something like that is, I haven't obviously spent any time thinking about it, but there are a lot of examples of brands and personalities that have had a renaissance through that reintroduction to the public in a new pers- from a new through a new lens and from a new perspective. And often those do come with the endorsement of someone that is popular, you know, at the time. I love that. And if you start to have a bunch of hardcore jazz fans as followers of yours, you'll know why, because I would have pushed this podcast around. On that note, Jeff Swearingen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was great getting to know you, Jeff. Come back again. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. And uh, even though there was no warning on the game, that's okay. I don't think anything was anyone was hurt in the process, so it was just good fun. And if you can ever hook me up, me and Chris up with a distributor for like you know a whole crate of the bean dip at I a time. Shipping container is really what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, that's what I need. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. It's going to look you're, great in the Bay Area backyard. Yep, that's yeah, what we're going to do. You have docks in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, yeah, we got plenty. Yeah, just keep it right on the dock. 
Thanks for listening to Transpose. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.